Space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. Welcome to Wild Weasel number 14, or if you've listened before, then welcome back. It's been too long since there's been a Wild Weasel, but my work schedule happened to include two full months of non-stop, well, work, which I have to say, left me with little time for more than eating, working, and sleeping. Today's off, we're filled with more sleeping. But I have some time over both holidays here, and the spirit of giving in the holiday season, I'm giving myself the gift of sitting down to do a Wild Weasel. I really enjoy doing these and hope you enjoy listening half as much as I enjoy the production. One gaming-related thing I did manage to do was start a game of Lee Brimacombe Woods Night Fighter on TomCheck's website, Quarter to Three, in which three players control one plane each, and I play the umpire. We're doing a simple scenario without radar, but I think it's a good way to show off the system and maybe get people interested in more complex stuff. It also got me to read Peter Hinchliffe's The Other Battle. I want to do a similar thing with Lee's game Bomber Command, since that will be a sim- uh, just a simple two-player versus game I'll need an opponent who knows the rules. If you'd be game for something like this, oh my god, I kill me here. Let me know. It wouldn't happen for a few months. What else? Pendragon arrived. Very happy to see that. Next War Poland, which I've been waiting on for what seems like forever, is also here, although I haven't played it. I did play a small scenario of Next War Korea, and it reminded me of how good this system is. I'm scheduled to do some gaming over the next couple weeks, although I don't know how much of it's going to be war gaming. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about, so let's get to it. First, the news. Not only has there been a lot of stuff going on since the last Wild Weasel, but the fact that we're in the holiday season means that there are some sales currently going on. So let's try to catch up on some of this stuff. First, Compass Games has a big holiday sale that is on until January 15th. There's a bunch of stuff that's heavily discounted, so it competes on price with a lot of online discounters. For example, Enemy Action Ardennes is on sale for 87 bucks. That game is so good that it would easily have made my list of top 5 solitaire games of all time back on Wild Weasel number 5 if I'd managed to play it by then. Ted Racer's Fall of the Third Reich is on sale for $48. And for $36, you can have a reprint of John Hill's classic Yalu, which I still enjoy 40 years after it was first published. Oh, and Steel Wolves, $130 regular price, down to $78. Of course, the commitment is never in the price, it's in the playing time, and I don't know of a game for which this is more true than Steel Wolves. Anyway, you can check all this out at compassgames.com slash holiday17. Multiman Publishing doesn't have any sales, they just have some announcements. First is that Forgotten War, the ASL module about Korea, is coming off pre-order on December 27th. 
That's your last chance to get it for $96. After that, it goes up to $128, plus $17 shipping, of course. You can save $32 until then. The second is that the ASL Starter Kit number 3 is back in stock. I love the concept of a starter kit for something as complex as ASL, and I've bought and sent copies of various starter kits to various friends of mine, exactly none of whom have gone on to play ASL. Still. The third is that if you don't have the Armies of Oblivion module for ASL, which covers the Axis Miners, you will get a chance to pre-order it starting December 27th, as it will be getting reprinted. Pre-order price looks like $111, with an expected retail price of $148. I'm telling you, if you had told 12-year-old Bruce that in the future, ASL modules would cost $150 each, he would have had a pediatric heart attack. Lastly, Front Toward Enemy, Joe Chacon's game about tactical engagements during the Vietnam War, is less than 60 pre-orders away from making their production goal. The game is going to be $70 at retail, but the pre-order price is $48. I'm interested in Vietnam tactical combat since there isn't much available on this topic besides Mark H. Walker's Forgotten Heroes, Vietnam, which is a good game in its own right, so I hope Front Toward Enemy makes it. All of that stuff is at www.multimanpublishing.com. Now, Jack Green's Hitler Strikes North, which is an update of his Norway 1940, is available direct from Jack. For $39 plus $10 shipping in the U.S., you get a very nicely updated version of a proven game that has been unavailable for quite a while. The game will be available from Revolution Games soon, but I don't see it listed there now, and I actually don't see much update on the Revolution Games page at all, so Jack can sell it to you direct for now if you like. I've posted his contact information as a link on this webpage. Jack also has Bear Flag Republic coming soon. It's the basis for his upcoming War of the Rebellion, uh, which is a game about the American Civil War, which is the reason that if you go to the contact information for Hitler Strikes North, you'll find that Jack is currently in Vicksburg. Very interesting. Bear Flag Republic will be going up on Kickstarter in partnership with One Small Step Games, so look for that one. GMT Games has shipped Pendragon, Next War Poland, and the expansion for Wing Leader called Wing Leader Blitz. Unfortunately, they've had to stop shipping Wing Leader Blitz because the campaign map somehow got left out, meaning you can't play the Drive on Kiev campaign. You can, however, play the non-campaign scenarios. People who've already gotten the game will get the campaign map separately. If you haven't gotten the game yet, uh, I would advise holding off. In any case, they're going to ship it only after the game has been reassembled. Uh, of GMT's new announcements, by far the most interesting one for me was All Bridges Burning, Red Revolt and the White Guard in Finland, 1917-1918. This is going to be a three-player coin game, which sounds like it could either be another landmark title in the series after Colonial Twilight so effectively established coin as a two-player game, or it could show how hard it is to keep a three-player game from devolving into two players finding a third player to gang up on. Um, I hope it's the former. My pre-order is in, and the game has already made the cut, despite being on P500 for less than a week. So congrats, Vesa. Um... Actually, that's their only new announcement. Um, oh, Battles of the Warrior Queen is shipping. Uh, the next scheduled releases, though, look like they're going to be in March, and those are just the World at War and Dominant Species reprints. Sounds like GMT has been spending a lot of time upgrading their business process systems, and if it leads to smoother releases and more games down the road, I'm all for it. Uh, the break might give me time to actually play some of their games. Now, 1980s nostalgia is all the rage these days. Hollandspiel is playtesting NATO Air Commander by Brad Smith, which is a solitaire game about mission planning in World War II. Compass Games has Ty Bomba's Brezhnev's War about things going full-on war in 1980. 
Now Paul Rohrbaugh at High Flying Dice Games has designed and made available for purchase Land of Confusion, the battle for the Folda Gap, 1985. Now, don't confuse this. I kill me. With City of Confusion, which is his two-player game about the battle for Hue and Tet in 1968. He has a lot of stuff in development, including something called Wheels of Change, the U.S. auto industry in the 1950s, but I'll wait on those until there's more info. Land of Confusion is $14.95, plus shipping, with an additional $5 if you want mounted counters instead of mounting them yourself. I did mention Hohenspiel. Uh, they have a new solitaire game designed by Tom Russell called Charlemagne, Master of Europe. This is a development of his Agricola Master of Britain game on a larger scale and looks very interesting. That's $45. Bucks. Um, I got a chance to play Grunwald Swords and Battles on the Ice a couple months ago, and I really love that system. I highly recommend it for anyone who likes medieval combat. It's very satisfying. Kevin Zucker's Operational Studies Group has Napoleon's Resurgence, The War of Liberation Part 1 on pre-order for $76. Estimated publication date on that is February 2018. He also has a pre-order for 48 copies. Yes, that's it, 48 copies, because I think he's just trying to get rid of extra parts of The Coming Storm, his quadra game of the Fourth Coalition. Kevin, that's great, but reprint Highway to the Kremlin, please. More people deserve to play that game without having to pay secondary market prices for it. Legion War Games has the great game on track for release in December, or January, I guess, since December is almost over, with Blenheim 1704 and the reprint of Picket Duty scheduled for early 2018. John Paniski's Maori Wars looks like it's close to being done as well, and it'll be in um, the early 2018 production schedule. All good news from a quality publisher, as far as I'm concerned. Decision Games has a deal for you until January 31st. Get Wacht am Rhein for $99. I think it's something like $160 retail. It's a big game. You can also get a free issue or two if you subscribe now to any of their magazines. You can check all that stuff out if it interests you at decisiongames.com. Mrs. Thatcher's War, which is a game I've been talking about for a while, is out from White Dog Games. This is a solitaire game from R. Ben Madison about the 1982 Falklands War. I got it. I'll report back. If you want a pro tip, though, a very trusted source of mine says that R. Ben Madison's game N, The Napoleonic Wars, is also from White Dog Games, is one of the best solitaire play games he's played in a while. Wow, huh? I'm intrigued. Gotta check it out. That's just what the word is on the street, though, that I've heard. URL is whitedoggames.com. Venton Volvo Games has a Kickstarter for Stalingrad, Inferno on the Volga, which is one of their block games. Uh, it still has five days to run, but it's already made well in excess of the goal, so this one looks like a go. I don't think I need any more block games right now, but you can never tell. I think Kev at the big board playtest for these guys, so maybe we should ask him about it. Hexasim has a pre-order for Ligny 1815, which is the third game of the Eels of France series, which is a regimental level, hour per turn, Napoleonic combat system. So it's pretty high level. Uh, 55 euros gets you two maps and four countersheets. I've heard good rumblings about this system, which is pretty hex encountering. Good times. Hexasim.com. And that's the news. So today on Wild Weasel, we have Tom Russell, who is one half of Holanspiel, a new. Uh, Indie Games Publisher from Michigan. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm fascinated by your games. You have a whole bunch of different games <laughs> that seem to just appear on the 
website, there's a new thing every time I seem to look. Uh, it's the way it uh, seems to me. Is is that a goal that you guys had of just having a whole bunch of games that people could choose from right off the bat? I mean, it's like boom, boom, boom. Look at all these games. Well, when we first started the company, we started it with the you know intention of it just being a a sideline, a way to get games out there and uh, a way to uh, publish games that that, that we enjoy. Uh, both Mary and I previously worked with Mark Walker. I worked on his magazine, Yah, as the editor for the first seven issues. Okay. And Mary was in charge of Tiny Battle for the first 15 games that came out. Okay. And, Tiny Battle Publishing. Uh, that's so, Mark, just so, so the listeners know, that's Mark H. Walker's Tiny Battle Publishing. He also mm-hmm. has uh, he has Flying Pig Games. He was the uh, lock and load honcho until I think he sold that yeah. to... Uh, um, some other people, but now he uh, runs Flying Pig and Tiny Battle. Yes. So we both had worked with him, and that uh, gave us a lot of practical knowledge as, as far as how, as far as what to expect with uh, print-on-demand method in particular. In terms of the business. and right? Yeah, in terms of the business end of things. So we kind of looked at it as, well, we'll release about a game a month. We'll do about a game a month, and that will give us, like, sideline income. And a few different things happened kind of at once, but one of the things was we ended up skipping a month and putting that game out the next month along with a second game. So we had two games out in a single month. And once we had that, uh, we found that we were doing well enough with that that if we were to do two games a month, we might be able to make it a, a full-time endeavor. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what we've done. And so now... We aim for five games every quarter, and since we're doing it full time, this is our only job and only source of income. We are able to uh, provide, hopefully, high quality products five times every quarter. Yeah, so that's pretty ambitious. Yeah, five games a quarter, because you have to get those games, yeah. you have to play test those games. Yep. And it's a long process. We have games, uh, you know, one of the games we have coming out come uh, November is uh, my game Charlemagne, Master of Europe. Uh, and the design work on that game that was done earlier this year, like in, I don't know, March. And it's been tested in that, but it's not coming out until November because we just want to make sure that we have enough lead time to catch anything. And... Uh, you know, we, it, it doesn't really matter when the game comes out, it's if, if the game is good or not. So if, if we have a game scheduled on, you know, on our schedule, then that means at that point we're just waiting on the art or, or the game is is done. If it gets pushed back a month or whatever, it gets pushed back a month or whatever, you know. Yeah, I, no, I understand so. that part. That's that's the, the, the problem always has been, you know, I think it's exacerbated most. You, you see this problem most with magazine games where the magazine's got to come out, right? And there's got to be a game. And... Maybe the game hasn't been fully playtested, but it's the closest game to completion that they have, and the magazine can't just not show up. So you get a game in a magazine, and maybe it's not the best game. So you guys yes. have yeah, uh, and, and yeah, and, and working on uh, on the mag on on the magazine uh, previously, I, I, I can attest that that, that the mag- the magazine cycle is very unforgiving. Yes. You, you you don't have a whole lot of room for error, and if you want to have a magazine out on time, 
then yep. something usually has to give. Yeah, that's Hopefully what... that's not the game, but sometimes it is. Yeah, that's what I was saying. You, you know? guys have had that. Yes, if you worked on the uh, magazine, the Yaw magazine, you have, you have experience with how deadlines can really uh, in how can they can affect quality. And so it's very uh, admirable that you guys have all these games to choose from. It, this, it seems like you have to go with this. I was listening to one of your podcasts, and for the listeners, I'll, I'll have a link to uh, to Tom and Mary's. By the way, we never mentioned. I mean, you said Mary. All the listeners probably already know this, but we'll just Mary Russell is Tom's wife, and Tom and Mary are Holandspiele. Um, that's um, the 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 company, Mary's uh, last name, and that's where this all is from. Um, but I was listening to a podcast that you guys do. You guys do these very short podcasts, which are great. I can uh, you know go. It's like fifteen minutes long give updates about the company and one of the things that you said was that there are a whole different bunch of different ways to publish games you can do the kickstarter method you can do the sort of p500 method etc etc but the print on demand method seems to be work the best for you because the lead time is less right you don't have to kickstarter is dependent on the funding actually coming through so people don't like the game there it'll just never get um the kickstarter will fail and you have to start from scratch uh, but you've invested all the money in promoting the Kickstarter. If you do a P500 kind of thing, you never know when that game's going to show up. You never know how many people or how how long it's going to take to get enough orders to put that into production. Yeah, it may never get to production. You have to switch gears. So print on demand. It seems like if you, but but the the risk there is you really have to know whether this game is going to your your opinion of the game's quality is really important because. You have to know that this game is going to be something that once you get it ready for production, you've invested all the time into it, people are going to buy it. Um, so you can have 30 games up on your website. Of course, if 28 of them are bad games, nobody's going to buy them. So that's a different kind of risk yeah. that you assume. Yeah, and it, it, it's just uh, it's absolutely right. And um, the, the whole thing is not to have any any weak links. Now, there might be a game that's not this this person's taste or that person's taste. Different people have different opinions about what makes a good game, of course, because it's, it's a, it's a subjective uh, thing. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, generally I, I tend to trust my, my instinct there. And if I, if I like the game, mm -hmm. if I love the game, mm -hmm. then, then generally I want to publish it. Right. You know, it might, it might, it might be a game that three other people will buy. I keep joking. I'm going to do a game on the Barbary Wars. Mm hmm or the War of Jenkins' Ear, something like really super obscure. Mm -hmm. um, but we're able, because of, there's so little overhead cost, other I than see. like the art cost, okay. and then something, uh, you know, so there's some special components like wood bits and cards that cost more up front. But generally, when you order a game, that's when we have it printed by Blue Panther, that's when we pay for it. Mm -hmm. So... There's no um, case there where we have a where we're going to take a loss on it. Got it. So you, you may so, not, so, you may not make any money, but you're you're not putting a whole bunch of assets into is something that's uh, you're, you're you're not like you said you're not going to lose. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, <clears throat> with all of the um, things that you've had to do to get this this company off the ground. What's the, I have some questions for you. What's the most challenging thing that you've had to overcome 
uh, in the establishment of your um, of your independent board game company? Uh, that is a good question. The most, hang on, get inside here. Neighbor wants to talk to me, and I don't <laughs> want to talk to him right now. Yeah. Uh, so the most challenging thing about getting the, the company started really to a degree it was kind of just taking the leap in and of itself mm-hmm. um we've been talking about publishing uh for for years even back before i was into war games when i was more into the euro games mm-hmm. we were intending to get into publishing because we looked at it and looked at there's not a whole lot of money in designing it's really hard to make a living as a designer but you have more of a chance doing it as a publisher. Right. Uh, but I always wanted to make sure like that I had enough of a, I guess, a reputation to trade on mm-hmm. where I, people would be familiar with my stuff and like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll support this new company. Tom Russell's involved with it. Mary Russell's involved with it. Um, so I was always kind of put, putting it off. And even when we were looking back in 2016 starting the company and filed the paperwork we still kind of put off launching it um i think part of that was i am very uh cautious and and very risk adverse okay i don't want you know i I didn't want to take a chance and have a blow up in 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 my face sure you know uh and have uh finance because you starting up the company there were certainly some 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 costs involved with that yeah and uh, getting the first, we had the first five games ready. Yeah, the first five games ready before we started taking orders for the first game. Okay. So we had all the art and everything. We had paid for all that. And so really it was just kind of taking that, that leap. And, you know, I, I wish we had done it sooner because it's, just, it's, it's done very well for us. Um, it wasn't, I don't know why I was so worried. But I think I, you know, was was worried that this might not work out, you know, and I, I might have this might be a, a horrendous mistake. I didn't want to be one of those companies that start off and, you know, no one, no one buys the game, no one talks about it, no one has heard of them, uh, and th- that luckily has not been the case. The the, the re- reaction has been very positive from the entire community and it, it, it seems like it just it continues to grow so that you know right now we have so many more people who are looking at our stuff and interested in our stuff than we had a year ago so it's it's growing the company's the company's yeah. uh, going in the right direction well that's great that's great to hear um so now that you're becoming a force in the hobby what are the what are the well, my second question is what are the kind of uh games that you don't see a lot of that you wish uh there would be more of it. Maybe you can uh, you can remedy that problem. I mean, I I, I want to see more games that have personality and that are kind of I guess idiosyncratic. I, I've talked about it, this a bit in, in the podcast and on the blog how we look for this or we look for that in in a game, and these are the kind of games that we'd like to see because we we generally publish the kind of games that that we want. To, to be out there. Okay. We, we'll never have a situation, I think, unless it's something that's like really components heavy or is really super off, off brand for us. Like, we're not going to do like a trading in the Mediterranean Euro game or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, other than that, uh, you know, we we say we look for this, we look for that, but really look for them that, that grabs us and something that is uh, very much its own thing. Now, that can still be like a, a hex encounter game with an odd-based CRT, but have its own thing going on underneath it. And something that... Um, well, here's an example. I was talking to a designer um, who was pitching some games to us that were in some ways fairly vanilla. Okay. And and to try to help this designer out, I, I pointed him to uh, a game that uh, Charles Vassy designed called Unhappy King Charles. Yes, I know that one. And, and, and I said, the thing about Unhappy King Charles is that only Charles Vassy could have designed that. <laughs> He's the only one that could have made that game. It has a lot of personality, and that's really what we're looking for, something that, that grabs us and something that is the that really expresses the, the personality of the designer. Um, we get that a lot with Brian Train games, or uh -huh. work with Brian Train. Yep. Uh, Cole Worley does that. Um, and that's really the kind of thing we're looking for, because we really try to, even with, with our, our, our cover design and our marketing, we try to be very designer-focused in the same way that a, a DVD company, like the Criterion Collection, is very director-focused. Okay. So we take kind of a, I guess, an auteurist an, an, uh, approach. Okay. And so maybe that's, that is more what we're looking for and what I want to see out there. I, I want games that are interesting, that are fun, that are compelling. Um, now they can be games that are just straight-up kinetic warfare. They can be more political or mm -hmm. diplomatic games. Mm -hmm. They can be really out there and weird games. We've had a lot of success as a company with the weird games, mm -hmm. more so than, like, the Hex Encounter stuff. Got it. I mean, something like Grunewald Swords does really well, but something like Supply Lines of the American Revolution, which is a kind of an aggressively weird game, that has done even better. Oh, that's good. Well, it's also the you American know. Revolution, whereas nobody even knows what Grunewald is. So, uh, at least not, that's true. Yeah, not your English-speaking audience. Um, so, so the uh, you mentioned Grunewald Swords because I I just played that game. Uh, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. I played it yesterday, and I really enjoyed that. I uh, my opponent made the comment after the game. He said it really punches above its weight. There are really a lot of interesting decisions to make, and there's a lot of tactics that uh, that doesn't you wouldn't think right from the beginning, you know, you just kind of read the rules. There's, there's some stuff going on, but it's not difficult to understand. But then I posted some stuff on Board Game Geek, just wondering about, you know, different rules and when we had back and forth. Yeah. So, so what is your, you, you write rules in a certain style. What, how would you say, this is, I guess, my, my third question to you. What, what is your philosophy of writing rules? Well, I, I tried to communicate the rules as um, simply as possible. I don't go in for a lot of kind of over-explanation or, or nitty-gritty. I want to make sure it communicates and that it communicates the idea fully. And uh, it, it being a human endeavor, me being a human being, sometimes I, I do fall short of that. But I generally try to communicate it in the simplest, most concise way possible, I tend to try to be more, I, I, I guess, conversational mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, with, with the rules. 
Um, if I think about how I would teach someone the game, if I was sitting down in front of them and talking to them about it, mm-hmm. I don't think the, the wording would be much different than what I have there on the page. Okay. Um, and I try to put a little humor into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, that. Person yep. inf- one person who's an influence on, on that um, is Richard Berg. Now, I'm not a huge fan of of a lot of Richard Berg's games. Mm-hmm. I, I like the one that we published. Mm-hmm. Okay. I like that one a lot. Which, but, um, which was uh, Dynasty. Yes, Dynasty. Uh, I just ordered it. It's a player game. And, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> it, it's a good game. I, I really like it. It's uh, it, it takes longer to play. And, and by longer, I mean it takes like three hours. Okay. Which is not really long in no. war games. But most of our, our games are more 90 minutes or so. Right. But so that's a long Euro, that's a long Euro. If you're if you're asking the Euro crowd to play a game for three hours, that's a that's a that's an ask. So yeah, it's it's a perfect it's perfect for war gamers though. That means uh, you can do it in basically an evening. Yeah. Um, but the thing with uh, Berg's rules is that there that there's a lot of personality in them, and um, he's not afraid to make jokes. Sometimes they're not really the world's funniest jokes, mm-hmm. but he still makes them. Yeah. And I you know I. I that really kind of opened my eyes a bit when I first encountered one of his rule books because before I used to write rules in a very um, very dry way mm-hmm. uh, without a lot of humor in it. And at that time, I was writing more um, rules for Euro games. So I was trying to make it as a Euro game designer. So the rules were, were shorter in that they were there was less going on with the rules because most Euro games, the rules are less complicated than a, a war game. Okay. But um, I wasn't expressing them in the the shortest, most direct way. In general, with the rules when designing, I try to make the rules as as simple as I can so that I can remember them. I don't always succeed in remembering them, but since I have, you know, a couple dozen games out at this point and I have half a dozen or more coming out next year it's a lot of rules to keep a hold of so that's why I try to if, if I if I'm ever like forgetting a rule it's probably not simple enough yet I see interesting that's a, that's an interesting philosophy well I I, I enjoyed Grunwald I, I like it enough I bought um, the two games that I actually just ordered from you were uh, Battle on the Ice and uh, Dynasty, so hopefully those will be showing up okay. this week. And I'll get—I'm uh, sure I can get Battle on the Ice out again because, uh, or out because it's like it's a similar system to Grunfeld, right? It's a, it's a it's a Shields and Swords two system. Yep, it's a, this, the same uh, core rule set, and uh, there are two battles battles on the ice. The first, the Lake Peepus battle, um, that one actually uh, has some similarities to the Grunewald battle in that there is a, a timing aspect where you are going to bring on a hidden wing at a certain time and when you do it determines extra VP that you get. Because um, that, that seems to be a very popular element of the Grunewald design. I want to give it a lot of replayability. So when I was doing battles on the ice, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to have to work in a similar element there. Uh, I didn't have that element in House of Normandy, which was the uh, 11th century quad game 
in the same system that came out between those two. And that one didn't do as well as Grunewald or um, Battles on the Ice. So my thinking was, you know, I need to have this more, more of a hook in the battle, as it were. Okay. Uh, well, we'll see. I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, uh, the other <clears throat> the other thing um, I want to thank you guys for, and this is something that maybe the listeners want to hear about, you provide images, uh, which is something that White Dog Games does too. That uh, there's a company that uh, called Print and Play. I think they do uh, board mounting. So it's uh, I think it's a great idea uh, for small publishers to distribute if, to people who've bought their game to get an image file that that can be sent and mounted. Um, I got a set of White Dog Games, the Solitaire Games. Uh, that they sent me the images for. I got the boards mounted. They look great. And um, I think that's something that uh, that more small publishers should do. So I just see that uh, Mary just sent me uh, my Dynasty and uh, Battles on the Ice um, images. So that's great. I'll have I'll send these out uh, immediately. It's going to be fantastic. Um, okay. What, uh, what is your... I'm going to ask you a bonus fourth question. What is your... Okay. What is your... Um, what is your preference? Would you, I mean, you're obviously designing a lot of games, but you're publishing a lot of games. Uh, which which one do you do you like to dig into more? Would you like to just sit down and is, is publishing the thing that's that's paying the bills, but you really like to design, or or um, do you, do you like the publishing part just fine? Ah, huh. that's that's a good question. That's a hard one to choose between because they're, I mean, they're. The two things are, are intertwined and related to a degree, uh, but also they kind of they scratch different itches, I guess. Because okay. there are times when I can't, there are times when I just can't design something. Like I don't have the brain space to do it, but I have the the I'm in the the kind of mode of thinking where I can tackle development of a game, graphic design of a game, and so on. And there are times when I can't do that, but I can, you know, uh, push some counters around for my own my own stuff or I'm researching the game. So it's kinda they they fulfill like different things that I, I find uh uh fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And you know, I do one and it kinda while I'm doing the one it's recharging my batteries for the other. Got it. Yeah, there's I'm sure there are different ways sense. of yeah, there are di- different ways of looking at games, but uh they're both a way of being involved in games, which is obviously something that uh you uh, are now able to successfully do full time, which I think is great, and uh, I hope to um, hope to see a whole bunch of more games from you. Um, I will let you know how I uh, get on with uh, Battle on the Ice, uh, and then I really, really am interested in in Dynasty. This is a uh, just for the listeners. This is a, a game about uh, the era of the five dynasties in um, in China. I think it's like in the tenth century, and uh, yeah, I, I was just talking to. Um, well, I had, a, I had a previous Wild Weasel where I talked to designer Philip Jelly talking about one of his – he did a sort of a Britannia uh, variant uh, for, with China, and I was wondering where all the Chinese history games were. Well, here's one of them from Richard Berg. Um, hopefully I can get enough players to, to play this one. He said three hours, yeah, huh? I, yeah, it might take a little bit longer the first game, but okay. it's, it's the three hours is the general time period. Yeah, I, and, and the, the thing with – uh, this particular game, and 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 why um, there aren't as many games on on, on Chinese history. Mm-hmm. 
I think there's a there's a prevailing wisdom, and I'm not necessarily certain it, it's a it's a true uh, prevailing wisdom, but prevailing wisdom that that ancient China doesn't sell. And I remember hearing an uh, interview that uh, Richard did with um, David Doctor, where he said he he's been trying to sell Dynasty and. Uh, Publishers, you're telling them that this won't sell. Ancient China won't sell. Huh? And you hear, you hear that. You hear like, you know, the American Civil War won't sell. But you know, from my point of view, it, it sells just fine. The American Civil War won't sell. Who's that's crazy talk. That I, I, I know, I know. But apparently, that's that's like something that uh, a lot of publishers are, are convinced is, is true. And maybe they just had a, a Civil War game that wasn't very good, and that one didn't sell. I'm I'm not sure. That's bizarre. You know, but it's. It sold well for us, and uh, it's always Dynasty. So it, uh, you know, but you, you people, you know, I, I think because we have the print-on-demand thing, we mitigate risk in a particular way that allows us to take risks on games that are, you know, quote-unquote tough sells. Yep. Um, the thing with uh, the Supply Lines game, uh, Supply Lines American Revolution, now I tried to sell that. Uh, for years to different publishers before we started Howlandspiel. And no one really wanted to touch it. Huh. Even those who thought it was a good game were like, well, we can't sell this, this three-hour game on, on logistics. Yeah. You know, who, who's going to buy this? Right. But it's, it's it's done really well. So sometimes it's just a matter of taking a chance. Now, if they had took a chance on it and done a traditional print run where they're printing X number of, of thousand copies or whatnot. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, maybe at that point it wouldn't sell. Right. Well, you you really you know? have to. Yeah. I mean, the print on demand thing really is uh, is a big sort of. It, it's a way that you guys can really mitigate that risk, and and the the saving grace of that is that print on demand has gotten good enough. I think. I mean, the old yeah. days, the print on demand just was so bad, and I I, I remember. Um, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to call out anybody, but there are some companies. There's one particular company that have gotten they've gotten much better, but I was getting these games and they just were so aesthetically unappealing because they were these you know print on demand things. Their print on demand provider didn't do a good job, and it really kind of kills the game for me. And now that uh, you know production technology has gotten so much better, I think you really can compete. Um, I, I had no problem taking the uh, Grunewald Swords map, putting a plexi over it, and uh, using the, you know, the very nice thick counters. So, yeah, I'm I'm very happy with the product um, from a physical standpoint, and I think that, uh, I mean, there's still clearly a difference between the print-on-demand and the, you know, purpose-printed, uh, you know, heavily die-cut um games but it's it's much smaller gap than it used to be yeah yeah well tom thank you so much for being on wild weasel i will um mm-hmm. let you get back to putting more games out um i will uh let you know how uh battle on the ice goes and then i have i already know how many how many games uh how many games how many how many players does uh does dynasty take it takes three or four. Three or four, okay. So it's, it's, so it's a three or four player game. All right. Well, I have to, I know of two specific victims that I'm going to subject to Dynasty. So I uh, will okay. email them, let them know, and then I'll let you know. And okay. I'll let Richard Berg Okay. Thanks a lot, Tom. Appreciate okay. it. Okay. Bye-bye.
I wanted to expand a bit on the talk I had in the last Wild Weasel about what level of abstraction means in gaming and how it does different things for different people. I was talking about the No Retreat series and how even though it abstracted away a lot of detail, it still managed to, for lack of a better term, feel right when it came to Eastern Front. And the idea of what feels right is at the heart of a lot of people's reactions to games, I think. Marc Guillaume Reti's Pendragon came out last week, and I'm anxious to try out another take on what has proven to be a flexible, adaptable, and resilient system, but which, of course, I mean the coin series. But I know there are some people out there, particularly in Wisconsin, who see coin as a militarily-themed euro. And when I posted a picture of Pendragon displacing Labyrinth from my game cabinet that had space for eight games and now contained volumes one to eight of the coin series, Kev at the big board teased me about being a, quote, coin whore. <laughs> sure, that's fine with me. But what I'm struck by is that coin has proven to be a bit of a wedge issue with gamers, which seems completely improbable and actually a bit unbelievable if you live through the late 1980s and early 1990s in gaming. Now, I know I keep mentioning this, but I'm going to do it more just as long as Wild Weasel is going, so just get used to it. And that's that there was a period back then when I honestly thought board gaming wasn't going to survive. Obviously, the internet had a lot to do with the hobby's resurgence, but I think the rise of simple, elegant family board games had a big part in it as well. I think there are a lot of people out there who would enjoy a board game, and I don't mean Clue or Parcheesi, if you showed them the right one. A couple friends of ours came to visit recently, and they casually mentioned that they'd been playing Small World all the time and enjoying the heck out of it. Now, these are two people who up until that very second, I would have guessed wouldn't have been able to name a board game besides Monopoly. And that's because the board gaming experience is not reserved for the nerd crowd. There are games for all people with all levels of introversion and extroversion, which means that the pool of potential board gamers is really much larger than maybe we thought. Who knew that all we needed to do to tap into that pool was to make better games? The result of this is that with more people playing games, games have gotten more sophisticated. I think this is both because they've had time to evolve and because this larger pool of players allows individual subgenres to flourish and eventually borrow from each other. Now, Dominion, which is a very popular deck builder, really popularized the whole idea of deck building as a core game mechanic. But when did Magic the Gathering come out? 1993? That's a long time for something as fundamental as uh, collecting and calling a set of cards to optimize its effects to become a useful tool in dozens of games, from Clank to, yep, Time of Crisis. Here we are, and asking the question, what is your favorite deck builder? Can start a discussion that lasts hours. Now, game mechanics aren't the only things that have evolved. Game themes have as well. Now, Mem Memoir 44 was a game that tried to take this idea of a simple system and apply it to a war game situation where the mechanics tried at least to do some historical modeling. Of course, Memoir 44 is a terrible historical game, and it's not even a very good game in my opinion, but it pretty significantly elevated the level of sophistication in family board games while expanding their thematic frontiers. Scotland Yard? Sure, detectives. Tikal? Oh yeah, Mayan ruins. Russian Front? I think that's a pretty big jump. So now that you have Euros in your board game space, what's the next thing wargamers are going to do? You know, dig lithographic trenches to keep out the invaders. I mean, come on, that's what I would do too. Because who's going to protect wargaming from these heathens? Look, I get it, and I'll get back to it. But I want to propose that the actual bar for what is a wargame has moved, and that it's this change in complexity itself that's the issue. Now take Storm over Arnhem. I remember when this was released, and even recall a letter to the editor of the General, which I mentioned in one of my videos, that called the game crap. Now that particular writer was just upset that there was you know, not as much work being done on ASL modules, 
but there was some general discontent with this design direction, I think. What that was, in my opinion, was a reaction to the idea of area movement, high outcome variability, and no odds columns. The thing is, all of those things ended up being enshrined in the system, which proved its worth in games like Turning Point Stalingrad, Breakout Normandy, and Monty's Gamble. But I'd argue even further that Euros like Twilight Imperium are coming at things from the other end, increasing the complexity to the point that 40 years ago, they would have been considered war games. The difference? Theme. I looked back through some games that Avalon Hill published back in the 1980s, like Gunslinger, Dark Emperor, and Down with the King, and while none of those are war games, they have very wargamey rules. Once people learned how to write rules that didn't sound like legal briefs, I think that paved the way for a lot more complexity in Eurogaming. And this kind of blurred the boundary between what was considered a war game and what wasn't, because whereas you could once argue for games being war games just because they were complicated, like Empires of the Middle Ages, there are plenty of games like that now, without question, that are considered Euros. And what was the difference back then? The difference was that back then, there was no other complex board gaming space. It was war games or nothing. So war gamers could exclude games they didn't like on the basis of theme. But now, there's a complex board gaming space, and the most complex games in that space overlap with less complex board games all the time. War of the Ring is hugely popular, and I'd argue that it is at least as complex as a low-moderate complexity war game. But hardcore war gamers can dismiss it on theme. Then Coin arrives. It clearly occupies the moderate complexity space, and is hardly more complicated than many Euros. But it is clearly war-themed, and not just in a superficial way. It actually tries to seriously model the conflicts it represents, and challenges more traditional war games while it does it, saying it actually does it better, or at least as well. But you can't dismiss it on complexity, and can't dismiss it on theme. So what do you do? You dismiss it on mechanics. Which I have to say, is fine. There are plenty of war gamers who want a more quantitative combat model, with more explicit effects and modifiers, and as I described last time when I talked about No Retreat, that's just how it is. This is about imaginative space, and I don't want to argue about it. All I have to say is, if you need traditional, you know, let's say wargaming elements, like combat factors and odds and terrain effects and hexes to enjoy a game, I say to you, that's completely valid. The hobby is about enjoyment and connection with the subject matter, and I'm not about to tell you what should fulfill those conditions for you. That would be ridiculous. But consider one thing. The same thing that brought more people into board gaming is the same thing that I think is bringing people into war gaming, and that's the creation of good games with clear rules on interesting topics. If you think that you can bring more people into board gaming by showing them the right board game, then it stands to reason that you can bring people into war gaming by showing them the right war game. For example, Churchill. 40 years ago, there is no way anyone would have called this anything other than a war game. Of course, it's impossible to imagine that level of design sophistication 40 years ago, but that's another story. And now, I'm seating Katie's Game Corner singing the praises of a game about three historical figures resolving strategic problems in the Second World War. Do you think Katie is more or less likely to call herself a wargamer now than if she had never picked up Churchill or Liberty or Death because the only thing she had available to her was the Operational Combat series, or nothing? My favorite game of 2017 is Holland 44. I think Mark Simonich's system is perfect for the battle, that a lot of his abstractions work extremely well, and that the game has a tension in each turn that I haven't experienced in many Hex Encounter War games in a long time. I've gotten up multiple times in my few days off so that I could vassal with my friend Don at 5 a.m. my time because of the time zone difference between the coasts. We finished one game and are playing it again after switching sides. It's a brilliant game. That, to me, is fundamentally wargaming. 
but I think that if we didn't have this slow migration of complexity and theme, that Holland 44 wouldn't necessarily exist. Because those games would be extinct, or would be playing one new game a year, like in the Avalon Hill Classic days in the 1960s and 70s. It's not a coincidence that board gaming became a breakout pastime with the advent of the internet, but it's also not a coincidence that wargaming has grown as wargamers have accepted new rules and mechanics that borrow from more family-oriented games. Wooden tokens. Card play. No combat results tables. And so on. What they haven't abandoned, though, is the thing that is most important to me about the whole thing, and that's history. Now, I mentioned in the news segment that Vesa Arpanen's game about the Finnish Civil War just made the cut on GMT's Project 500 after only a few days. Amazingly, that's not the first game about the Finnish Civil War in 2017. Brian Train's Finnish Civil War came out not too long ago in Paper Wars number 84. Now it's a more traditional Hex and Counter War game, with combat factors and everything. I suspect a lot more people are going to learn things about the Finnish Civil War, including the fact that it happened, than would have if these games hadn't come out, and if wargaming hadn't flourished the way it has. I know there's a lot of playful back and forth on Twitter and on podcasts about this stuff, and I love the pushback here and there because it means people are interacting with each other, and that builds ties and connections in the hobby, and that's, I think, fundamentally what it's all about. But I've also seen some pretty unpleasant stuff posted in various places in which people seem genuinely angry that games like this exist and denigrate the people who play them, which is, how can I put it, suboptimal. The way I look at it is, which I think is appropriate for the holiday season, is that these games are gifts. They're things I never would have expected or hoped for, but here they are, and I'm thankful for them. Every time I go into my game room, I think that 12-year-old me would never have imagined that over 30 years later, he'd be able to enjoy an entire room of his house filled with nothing but 600 board games, many of which were released in the past 10 years. I'm hoping 80-year-old me doesn't see that as the high point of my hobby life, because I think there's still plenty of room left to grow. And that's it for this time. I'm going out of town for a couple days, and might even be able to get a few friends to try Pericles. On the other hand, they may rope me into playing Gloomhaven. Wish me luck. I'm bringing Pendragon as well. Next time, I hope to have a Mrs. Thatcher's War Report, as well as other stuff. And what am I going to get to play next War Poland? Anyway, until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for more Wargaming news, people, and views. This has been Wild Weasel number 14. Merry Christmas, everybody.